to Why I Vaccinate, presented by the Franny Strong Foundation and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Ann Thomas, and I'm here with my co-host, Veronica McNally. And Veronica, an interesting show coming up. We have a great show. We're going to be talking about how far we've come with vaccines. Our guests include a nurse educator with the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, a doctor from Vanderbilt University, a parent who's a teacher of seventh grade math, and finally, a law professor who's going to talk to us about health literacy. A lot in store. We'll get started right after this. Why I Vaccinate, presented by the Franny Strong Foundation and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Ann Thomas. I am here with my co-host, Veronica McNally. And on this edition of the show, we're going to talk about the important history of vaccinations and the progress that has been made over the years to save lives. Our first guest is Heidi Loins. She is an immunization nurse educator with the Division of Immunization, Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. And Heidi, we appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. And yes, I'm one of the nurse educators with the state of Michigan, so thank you. We'll start out, Heidi, and educate us about the COVID-19 vaccine. That's top of mind these days, so let's talk about that first. Okay, perfect. Um, so with COVID-19 vaccine, this has been one of our um, our biggest areas and, you know, and honestly at times challenges as well. But um, our focus has really gone to COVID-19 vaccine and um, ensuring that we're um, educating our providers and educating the public on the importance of being vaccinated um, and making sure that they understand just even the recommendations and the guidance that has been coming out because it has been a little confusing, as you know. <laughs> um, there's been multiple changes with with the guidance as it's come along um, and has been rolled out, and it's just it's been a little bit difficult for people to understand. So that's been one of the biggest roles that we've had is helping people understand our providers included the differences and the recommendations and the changes. And and I'm not sure if everybody has heard, but we're recently going to be. Um, moving into a new area with COVID, which is gonna be vaccinating our youngest population, which will be six months through four years. And um, that'll be happening and we'll be hearing more about this in the next few weeks. So stay tuned because that is something that you'll be seeing a lot of educational pieces coming out from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services um, within the Division of Immunizations. And Heidi, before we get into that a little bit, explain to our listeners the difference between regular vaccines that we've all been familiar with as children and in the past flu vaccine compared to the COVID-19 vaccines. Oh, this is this is a great question here. And it has been different. COVID-19, just the rollout in general has been different. You know, when we roll out vaccines, typically we have the recommendations right in front of us. You know, they, they put out that information. We know this vaccine is typically pediatric focused for the most part. We, that's a lot of our vaccines that we receive. And when we roll that out, we have very specific recommendations to follow for children and adolescents. Um, COVID was different in that aspect. COVID, um, you know, being a pandemic, we were we were giving guidance that con- continually changes. But the, the thing that happened with COVID is that when it first came out, we had a very limited supply of vaccine, right? And we had to establish priority groups to ensure that we were meeting the need of the most at-risk population. And that priority group wasn't the pediatrics and children 
um, the children adolescent group, um, partly because we didn't have a vaccine for that age group, right? We didn't have a vaccine authorized for use. So our guidelines, you know, were, when we rolled them out, were for certain population groups. And um, that has been one of the biggest things and the biggest differences with this is, you know, we had that along with storage and handling components of this, this vaccine. That was a little bit different with the rollout. We had to make sure that all our providers were up to speed with storage and handling. Um, and that was another challenge that we received with this rollout that was different with um, our routine recommendation vaccines that we typically see. Um, just the education um, the ever-changing recommendations, um, that was the other difference. Like I said, when we get our routine, usually we see those come out through um, the advisory committee and immunization practices. They, they say, here, this, these are the recommendations that we voted on. The CDC, you know, gives us approval, and then we have that information in front of us. We do that still with COVID-19 vaccines, but a couple of weeks down the road, we may see like, oh, look, we have another area that's been authorized for use. So that's something that we have, you know, has come up with um, the COVID-19 vaccines as well, making the rollout just a little bit different, not not hard, not really, really hard, but just different and you know, a little challenging in that aspect. And Heidi, when you mentioned that in a couple of weeks, children under the age of five were going to be able to be vaccinated, and this was a whole new thing coming our way, I'm surprised my co-host, Veronica McNally, wasn't getting up and dancing around the room, because obviously <laughs> this is fabulous news. So I know she's got some questions for you about this and the vaccine in general. So Veronica, take it away. Thank you. Heidi, for the benefit of our listeners, talk to us about the current recommendations, who should get vaccinated and when? Perfect, yes. Um, the current recommendations for the COVID-19 vaccine is that those who are five years of age and older, they're recommended to receive the COVID-19 vaccine um, with an age-appropriate COVID-19 vaccine. So right now, for five through 17 years of age, we have Pfizer vaccine. That is the one that is authorized for use in that age group. And then 18 years and older, we, we have um, Moderna, we have Pfizer, and we also have the J&J &J vaccine. So those are the vaccines that can be used in there. When it comes to Pfizer vaccine, um, that's the one I'll focus in on a little bit because that's one for all the ages, five through um you know, older, just the older in general, but five through 17, Pfizer is a two dose series. Okay. So you get your first dose and then you'll get your second dose 21 days later. Um, and then that will be, you're basically um, fully vaccinated, considered fully vaccinated at that point. But we also have recommendations for boosters and additional doses. And what additional doses, the additional doses, the additional third dose in the primary series, that's for certain groups that are um, moderately to or severely immunocompromised. Um, and you have to be, you know, within a um, specific cohort to be considered for an additional dose. And that recommendation is only for 12 years and older. So, you know, it gets a little confusing at times when, when, um, we are dealing with immunizations with COVID because we got age ranges we got to deal with. We got additional doses, we got booster doses. But um, the big thing that I want you all to take away is that we do have recommendations right at this time for five years and older to receive their primary series with an age appropriate COVID-19 vaccine. There are still some people who have not been vaccinated yet. What are our challenges in Michigan with this unvaccinated population? Oh, that in, you know, some of the biggest challenges we see, um, one of the things that I try to battle is breaking down barriers. And one of the barriers we have is education in general, right? We want to make sure that we're giving them the most current 
um, up-to-date education so that any questions that they have, that they're being answered so that they're making that decision based on scientific-based evidence um, research. We have a lot of myths out there. Um, there's a lot of things that there's barriers like that um, that are making it very difficult. Like, you know, sometimes one of the things we hear about at the beginning of the pandemic was COVID-19 vaccine is going to give you the actual virus, right? It's going to make you sick and make you have COVID. And that's not true. That is not that the virus is it's not live. It's not going to make you come down with COVID-19. That's that's not how the vaccine works. But those are educational points that we had to break down. That's a barrier. Other barriers that we see and hear are things like transportation, finding a vaccine location, um, clinic hours. And those are things that we are all currently working on. And it's especially important right now as we're moving into, we have our, you know, our young children and our teens. But as we start thinking about even our youngest population, those six months through four years as we go into that group, are we providing clinics that are easy to access, that parents are going to be able to get to, or guardians are going to be able to get to? What are the timing of those clinic hours? Those are barriers that we all need to work on and break down. So what we're doing now within the Division of Immunization is we're working with partners to ensure that we're breaking down those barriers. We have partners within the schools. We have partners in the pharmacy. We have our local health departments. And we're all meeting together trying to say, hey, how can this happen? How can we make sure that we're getting to those populations that need it? Because that 5 through 11 right now, that's the group that we, we're kind of seeing, well, they don't have the best rates. And we want to make sure that we're getting them vaccinated. And how can we do that? Because if we're seeing that with 5 to 11, we're probably going to see that with six months through four years, right? I mean, that's going to be something that we may see. So those are the, that, those are the things that we need to focus on the challenges that we're having um, and the barriers that we're seeing and um, working with our partners um, will help break those barriers down. Like maybe having school located clinics, maybe having clinics after work hours, you know, those type of things. Heidi, that's so important to ensure our success for vaccination in Michigan. Thank you for everything that you're doing and that MDHHS is doing to, to keep Michigan safe. Thank you. Heidi Loins, immunization nurse educator with the Division of Immunization, Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. We really appreciate the advice and the time today. Thank you very much. And thank you for allowing me to be a part of this. I appreciate it. You are listening to Why I Vaccinate. We'll be back right after this. listening to Why I Vaccinate. I'm Ann Thomas. I'm here with my co-host, Veronica McNally. And Veronica, our next guest, I know you are looking forward to talking to her, Kip Talbot. She is the Associate Professor of Medicine, the Division of Infectious Diseases, and Associate Professor of Health Policy at Vanderbilt University. Welcome to the show, Kip. It's great to have you here. Thank you. And Veronica, I'm going to let you kick this line of questioning off because I know you've got some interesting uh, points that you want to make with Kip today. Yeah, thank you. Kip, I want to talk to you about the evolution of vaccines over the decades to get us to where we are today and to get us to the fact that we could have a COVID vaccine developed um, and be so effective. So tell us about how we got to this COVID technology. This is so exciting. This is when my inner nerd pops out. So <laughs> vaccine development has been so slow in some ways. And yet in the last 20 years, it's just 
taken off and has become incredibly exciting. So first, we really started off with taking either a virus or a bacteria and just killing it and injecting that whole pathogen. Um, and it didn't cause disease because it was dead, but um, caused a lot of reactions because there are a lot of parts to those vaccines. Um, but in the last 20 to 30 years, we've realized that there are viruses that cause pandemics, and we have been very worried about being prepared um, and being able to have a vaccine. And so it really kind of started with the the avian influenza vaccines that we're seeing in the Far East. And then Ebola popped up, SARS popped up, Ebola popped up again. And so we began to say, we need a platform. We need a way to design vaccines that we can quickly create a new antigen and inject it and teach people's immune systems to respond, respond quickly, and to break a pandemic. It's interesting. We got we're not lucky we had a pandemic, but we are somewhat lucky in that it's a virus that's similar to one that came before. So our researchers in 2003, when SARS hit the first time, started developing vaccines for SARS. And they were able to use all the information and trials that they had over the next 15 years. So when that SARS-CoV-2 hit or COVID-19 hit, they were prepared and had learned a lot and had a platform, which was messenger RNA, ready, set, go. Um, and pretty familiar with the design part of it at that point. So we were able to get a vaccine that worked really well, really quickly, based on probably 15 years of experience, but they were able to um, turn that 15 years of experience from one vaccine into another. So talk to us now about the variant. So the vaccine's effectiveness against this current variant. And, and I really want our listeners to understand the importance of obviously getting vaccinated. Yes. So as the virus circulates, it's finding people who have never seen this virus before. And the virus is able to grow. And when it grows, it makes mistakes. And those mistakes are what creates variants. Mm. Until everyone has an immune system, it will continue. <laughs> well, the immune system that works against SARS-CoV-2, um, until that happens, we will continue you see variants go. Now, when you are given a vaccine, your body makes not just one kind of antibody, but many kinds of antibodies. And so there are the opportunity for you to make antibodies to all different kinds of strains. Mm -hmm. We have found, however, if you get those three doses of vaccine that the booster that we've been talking about recently, your body really learns to make lots of different antibodies and make them very well and make them so that they'll stick around for longer periods of time. We also have learned that when we have done this, um, when um, we give this third vaccine, that we create antibodies high enough to prevent severe illness due to these variants. Now, at some point that may change, but right here and now, the variants that we have are preventable um, at least severe disease, using the vaccines that we currently have. Now, that may change, and at that point, we may have to have a new vaccine. But at this point, it still works to prevent hospitalization and death. And at the beginning of this pandemic, we'd heard that kids didn't really get very sick uh, from COVID. And then kids weren't eligible initially to be vaccinated. And now we have a vaccine for them for ages five and over. Talk to us about the importance of getting kids vaccinated against COVID. 
Yeah, I like to remind everyone that this was a new virus and we were learning as quickly as we could. And so some of the things that we thought were true in the beginning we have learned may not necessarily be true. One of the first things we thought was that children would not be affected. Well, we also had children at home, not doing sports, not doing school. And so they weren't being exposed like they regularly were. We actually saw the regular viruses that kids get disappear. There was no flu. There was no respiratory syncytial virus. So we really saw that kids were not being exposed to viruses because they were at home and not doing their regular activities. Once kids started returning to sports and school, we started seeing kids get sick. Now, kids are not likely to get as sick as a 65-year-old, but we still see some kids with severe disease. They can either be sick with COVID or with a syndrome that follows a COVID infection called multi-inflammatory syndrome, MISC. Um, So I think it's really important that we take a step back and say, yeah, at first we didn't think kids got sick, but now we're learning some kids do get sick. The vast majority don't get severely ill, but some of them will get severely ill. I think the second part of that is um, they need to be vaccinated so they can go back to school. Our kids um, need to be educated. Our kids need to have the social events. They need to have their sporting events. They need to have their physical exercise. Many kids go to school and that's where they get two or their three meals a day or two of their two meals a day. Um, so it's important for them to eat. I mean, it's also important to prevent teen pregnancies and other problems that we're seeing in kids. So I think um, the vaccination really is to protect the children and give them an opportunity to grow in a safe environment. What do you want parents to know and understand about vaccine safety? Yeah, so I take this very seriously for multiple reasons, and you you know Veronica, but I'll tell the group. So I actually chair the vaccine um, safety task force for the U.S. for the COVID vaccine. So I take it very seriously for that reason. And the second reason is I'm a parent, um, and I want my kids to thrive and do well. And um, so I really am very very cautious and very intent on looking at the safety. So there's a lot of rumors going around saying we don't care, no one's looking, it's not true. We are actively looking for safety. I think the biggest thing that most parents would know is that if you if you interviewed pediatricians, they are all anxious to vaccinate their own kids. So that should tell you that they feel comfortable, they feel like it's safe. And I will tell you at ACIP, many of us who have young kids or younger kids have said, I have vaccinated my kids. So that's how safe and important we feel it is. Yeah, I think that's so important. I know Anne is a grandma and she may have a couple extra questions for you. Well, Kip, one thing that I kind of want to revisit with you that you brought up, but I want to make it really clear. Lately, when I'm out and about, I hear people say to me, well, I don't even know why we got these vaccines. You can still get sick. And would you kind of explain that to people? Yes, you might still get sick, but you're probably not going to end up in the hospital. Exactly. So I think we were a little spoiled in the beginning of the pandemic. Our vaccine matched perfectly what was circulating and it prevented infection and severe infection. As the virus has changed somewhat, there are some breakthrough cases where people get infected. But the majority of people are not being hospitalized or in the ICU. So if you look at the numbers of people in the ICU, the majority of people that are in the ICU on 
life support are people who have not been vaccinated. And so there is still a great benefit from this vaccine. You may still have that flu-like illness up front, but hopefully you won't be seeing someone like me in the hospital. And with regard to children, the little ones, I've also heard recently a lot of experts say, if we can get these little ones vaccinated at a good rate, we really might start to see the end of the pandemic and we might end up heading into the endemic phase. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's possible in some areas. I actually live in a part of the country where many adults aren't yet vaccinated, and that needs to be just as much as a priority as the little kids. So I think it's really anyone who's not been vaccinated, whether an adult or a child or an adolescent, um, really the way to stop this pandemic is to vaccinate those who are unvaccinated. No matter what, no matter matter the age. No matter the age. So we can all move forward and go back to movies and dances and have a great time. Kip Talbot, Associate Professor of Medicine, Division of Infectious Diseases, and Associate Professor of Health Policy at Vanderbilt University. Thank you so much for your time, for your expertise. We really appreciate it. And the conversation will continue in just a few minutes on Why I Vaccinate. continues now on Why I Vaccinate with Brian Moody. He is a seventh grade math teacher with the East Lansing Public Schools. And Brian, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Good morning and thank you for having me. And Veronica, I'm going to have you start the conversation with Brian Moody. Brian, thank you for joining. I know that you are a seventh grade teacher. Math, is that right? That's correct, yes. I have a seventh grader in math and uh, really appreciate everything that you do. So thanks Thank for you. joining. I, I know that you have three kids too. And uh, and we were just talking and I understand that your family is actually going through a COVID infection now. How's it that been? Is, that's correct. Uh, it's been, you know, with a, I have three kids. The, the oldest one is eight. Um, and she had a, a little bit of a fever one day. Um, she had a headache, but then the next day it was like pretty much the, her symptoms were gone. Um, she is vaccinated. Um, and uh, so that was, you know, great. And then my middle child, my uh, son got it and he, uh, ha- also had, he just complained of a headache for one day and that was it. So they were both home. Uh, Stella went back to school. My daughter went back to school yesterday. Um, uh, my son is still home and now my two-year-old, uh, has, uh, you know, got COVID as well. And he is obviously not vaccinated. Um, and he's the one having the worst time with it. Um, especially late at night, he gets that cough and he starts in these coughing fits and then he starts crying as a result of the coughing and it just spirals out of control and nobody's getting a whole lot of sleep right now. So, (sighs) yeah. Yeah, that must be stressful. But you, you've you been in this situation, being in school, being a teacher um, for a while now. And I, I'm just wondering, how do you deal with the stress of the potential for this COVID infection on a regular basis? It's um, every single day. I was, I was talking with somebody the other day and I said, uh, you know, each day I get three letters um, uh, each day, COVID letters, one from my uh, my middle child's school, one from my daughter's school, because they're at separate schools, and then one from my own school. Um, I get uh, numerous 
uh, contract tracing emails each day. You know, please send us the who sits within zero to three feet of this student or three to six feet of this student, um, like throughout the day. So you got to pause your teaching. You got to go to your seating charts. Um, then you got to email all the names to the office. And then they're, uh, while you're trying to teach, they're constantly calling and saying, send this student down, um, have them bring their things. So you get an idea that that means they probably are positive. So, um, or they're, you know, going to have to quarantine. So it's just, it's just been a crazy, like (laughs) nightmare. This, these last couple of years have been very, very challenging. Has the vaccination opportunity for kids five and over made it better in any way for you? It does seem like it has been better. Um, the The students are usually gone for less time, um, uh, so so that's been good. But we don't really get all of the information. Everything is very protected, so we can just kind of go by. You know, if somebody was called out and then they're back relatively soon, you assume that must person must have been vaccinated. So that's good. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's just it's been a challenge um, in so many different ways. I also moved schools this year as well. So I went from a small rural town, uh, a rural school in northwest Genesee County to East Lansing schools. Um, so there's been a lot of changes for me, <laughs> um, going from fourth grade to teaching seventh grade math again, uh, has been a big challenge as well. So I've added extra challenges to this even more challenging year. And your eight-year-old knowing that she was vaccinated when she got sick was, did that provide you with any additional level of comfort with this vac- with this infection? Yeah, I definitely, uh, because I had a little bit of, I had a lot of anxiety over that, but knowing that she was at least vaccinated and would have some protection, obviously the first day when it hit and she was, had the fever and the sore throat and the headache, I got very concerned. Um, But then within a day, uh, like I said, her symptoms have uh, went down right away and and were gone. So it greatly minimized her symptoms. Um, So once I saw that, you know, uh, the symptoms were being relieved and she was fine, um, then I felt a lot better. Same thing with my middle child. Um, I haven't had that feeling yet with my two-year-old because he's still going through it. So, The importance of being in school as an educator, and we've talked to, we've had some other parents join us on the show, and obviously they've expressed um, excitement about being able to have their kids in school and have their kids in sports. But from the inside, can you tell us the importance of that? Can you tell us the before Mm -hmm. and after of having kids remote learning and then having kids back to the classroom? What has that been like? Um, Yeah, it's, that's been a huge challenge, especially with teaching math, because math um, unlike some of the other subjects, it really builds on itself. So if they don't, if they're missing for any part of the process, they're you know, and they're trying to do remote learning, or they're trying to, you know, watch a video or do some of our activities on Google Classroom or whatever, they still don't have somebody there explaining, going through uh, all the you know parts of the problem solving process with them. Um, so it's just it's a little bit more difficult. Um, a lot of emails from parents about what can my student do and we've got to you know we're just trying to um, be as flexible um, as we can um, 
but it's it's a real challenge um you know keeping keeping the kids there letting the kids um trying to get them caught up being graceful with them when they're gone you know with assignments basically there's like no real due dates anymore um we just <laughs> i have the assignments and whenever you get them done just let me know if it's past the due date send me an email um i'll be flexible um but just yeah it's it's been quite head spinning for these past two years. Yeah, I know. And I know you have some questions for, for Brian, too. Actually, the last question that you asked, Veronica, I think is key because Brian's living it. You know, it's very interesting to hear Brian talk to us about what he's experiencing day in and day out, because you hear a lot of people say, we've got to have kids back in school and teachers need to be back in school. But this process that you describe and how it's actually working is, is something to think about, Brian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, just the, the number of, you know, times per day that you are interrupted um, and, and you can't just get that flow going and get into the lesson and get, keep the kids' attention. Um, and, and, you know, so many of them right now are using Chromebooks, so they've got Chromebooks in front of them. So there's just so many more distractions going on in the classroom. And I just want, with math, I'm just like, you know, eyes and ears up here, uh, you know, stay with me here. Let's, let's go through this problem. Um, and we also like to, uh, as math teachers, we like to do little small group activities, but I don't really feel comfortable doing a lot of small group activities during COVID. So it's impacted the, the lessons. Um, uh, so yeah, there's, there's just been a never ending, <laughs> uh, just a, a lot of challenges that, that keep popping up as well. Well, we thank you very much for sharing your experiences today with us. We really appreciate it. It was nice to meet you, and we hope everybody gets better very, very quickly. Thank you very much, and I appreciate you having me on. Why I Vaccinate will continue right after this. Our last guest is Chris Trudeau. He's an associate professor of law, University of Arkansas, Little Rock, the Bowen School of Law, and at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. Welcome to the show, Chris. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm a Michigander uh, by nature, so I'm happy to uh, have to be part of this. Oh, it's great to have you here. So we're going to talk to you a little bit about health literacy And that is so important right now, Chris, because some people think that they know what's going on with regard to COVID, but maybe they need a little bit more work in the health literacy world. So kind of explain what it means to be health literate. Well, it's a really broad concept. You know, I mean, it really, it's how people uh, obtain, process, and use information in order to make health health decisions. And of course, with the pandemic, that's put everything on, uh, you know, kind of under a microscope about how we're doing things. Because everybody, even if you think about it, even even providers and researchers had to learn about this. You know, this wasn't a thing, you know, a little bit over two years ago. Uh, so everybody's um, ability to process and, and, and uh, you know, new information and then make decisions based on it has been evolving over time. And so, uh, you know, I hate to think about silver linings, you know, through the pandemic like this, but that's this has been the case study of case studies in terms of how are how is our communication processes working? You know, how do we get people, 
you know, to take a new concept and understand it and then act on it in order to benefit themselves, you know, benefit their loved ones, benefit their constituents if they're if they're government employees or politicians or something to that effect. I mean, it goes it goes on and on. Well, Chris, there's a lot of information out there right now, misinformation, I right. should say, right. about COVID, COVID-19 and vaccinations. So how do you combat that? How do people sort through everything and figure out what is the truth and what should they do? That is the tough part, right? I mean, that's uh, that's where, um, you know, I'm on the, um, the National Academy of Sciences Roundtable on Health Literacy. And one of the things we've been doing the last two years really is having sessions on misinformation and how to combat that. Uh, and that is the tough thing. It depends on who you are, right? If you're a provider, you hopefully have uh, patients who know, like, and trust you. So that way you have a little bit more um, you know, credibility when you're trying to explain certain things. But then again, you, you hear things, a lot of the noise, like you mentioned, a lot of this misinformation from, um, you know, be it from um, the internet or from just friends of family, you know, through, through this kind of uh, uh, this cascade of, of information flow that kind of contradicts you. Oh, I heard so Dr. So-and-so isn't, uh, isn't getting vaccinated or, or nurse so-and-so said, oh, this is crazy to get vaccinated. And that's the problem is when you have these folks who have this perceived credibility, um, you know, giving information that might be different than what your normal trusted providers are, are, are providing you, um, that is normal to cause doubt. So, I mean, people always say, well, you should really just trust in people. It's We've had misinformation from everybody from, you know, the person on the street all the way up to the CDC. And, and with the CDC, I don't really think it's misinformation. I just think we're learning as we go. Uh, and that's been the problem, right, is we didn't know anything about this. And so I kind of differentiate kind of this learning where we once thought it was like this, but now it's like this versus just kind of wholesale, you know, um, letting kind of your inner emotions kind of drive what's what's happening rather than science and kind of what what we're learning through the, you know, through day to day activities of life and science and research and those type of things. And this is something that Veronica and I talk about all the time on this show trying to make sure that we follow the science and we're smart about what we do, both for ourselves and our children. Veronica, I know you've got some questions about this for Chris. Chris, what we understand is that this virus is disproportionately impacting people of color. And I want to understand if health literacy is contributing to this disproportionate impact. Well, I think I think it is in in some ways. I mean, I, I think health literacy is not is is colorblind in many ways. You know, it. Um, I, I tend to think of it as uh, situational because if I, you know, um, you know, I'm a lawyer, so if I go in and I, you know, I've just been diagnosed with cancer, uh, well, I'm not going to understand the next ten things that come out of your mouth because I just got told I had cancer, and even though I might have the ability to process and use that information once you tell it to me. The situation that I'm in is difficult, and so when you think about anybody, whether we have a lot of um, uh, you know a lot of uh, uh, rural communities here in Arkansas as well, that that not only you know of all colors um, in all shapes and sizes basically, and they're all struggling, you know. So, but I do think the problem with that, his, you know, historically, is, is that uh, uh, is that there has been the lack of trust. Um, in the healthcare system from folks 
uh, who have been marginalized over the years. And so now you're asking them to, you know, basically just put this blind faith in you when that's not what their ethos has been over time because they've been, um, you know, they have been kind of the subject of, you know, clinical trials that have not been, you know, where they haven't been uh, truthful, like the Tuskegee uh, syphilis trial, you know, or uh, clinical trials and those type of things over the years. So, so combating that trust is, um, is a real difficult thing to do, whether it be rural Michigan, rural Arkansas, no matter where, or even urban areas, of course. And so one of the tactics that is being used to try and improve vaccination rates is to get community leaders to talk about this vaccine, the importance of this, this vaccine, and to educate. Is that an effective use yes. of, of resources? That is, because even before this, that's what we always said, because one of the things I do here at the medical school is try and um, get diversity of enrollment in clinical trials. So whether it be like a new cancer trial or, you know, trying a new cancer drug or something to that effect, you still want, you know, people from all different type parts of the population. And that's one of the things we've been doing for years is kind of what I call what I call uh, churches, barbershops and beauty parlors. If you can get you know, those trust, you know, because those are the places people go, they, they congregate, they tend to kind of, you know, whether, you know, they tend to respect uh, what they hear in those places. And so if you can be in the community and have those community leaders that people know, like, and trust um, conveying this message, you know, people are still going to do what they're going to do, but you're going to get a much higher percentage of those folks doing that. We're doing that here uh, in Arkansas now. You're seeing a lot of commercials or radio spots of, whether sports figures, you know, you know, all different, you know, people of all different types that have some clout in the community saying, you know, I, I vaccinated, you should too, basically, that's the effect of the message. So when people have questions, and they don't understand maybe the science behind this vaccine yet, and they're going to these facilities that have large um, turnover so that they can process the vaccine quickly, right? So you've got clinics, you've got pharmacies, what, what advice do you have for people to be able to have discussions about the vaccine to get their questions answered? Yeah, that is, it's like you mentioned earlier, it's kind of like you have to shut out the noise and figure out who you're going to trust. It's almost like in some ways it feels really scary, even for, even for, for me, you know, it's like, okay, I'm just, because you hear all this misinformation, I tend to, like you said, follow, follow the science. So even though, you know, sometimes on the news, you might hear some bad things said about the CDC and its response. They are the, you know, the World Health Organization, the, C the CDC. They're, they're in it for everybody. They're not trying to fool you or hoodwink you or do those type of things. They care about everybody. So that's what I typically say is, is follow those major sources that have no incentive to try and tell you anything that's not going to help you and, and your community members and your family. Uh, and that's hard to do, of course, but that's that's the goal. Unfortunately, that's what the misinformation does is it makes you doubt everything. Yeah, follow the science, follow the good information. Thank you so right. much for being with us. Oh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Chris Trudeau, Associate Professor of Law, University of Arkansas Little Rock, the Bowen School of Law, and he's also at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. We really appreciate the advice. I have been trying to do exactly what you're saying, Chris. Pick somebody that I really trust in the scientific world, a doctor, and stay with it and follow that advice. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's a good, that's good advice. 
You've been listening to Why I Vaccinate, presented by the Franny Strong Foundation and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Ann Thomas, and on behalf of my co-host, Veronica McNally, thank you for listening, and we hope you have a great day. Thank you.